Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 146. In this episode, we're talking about preaching to a divided nation with Reverend Dr. Paul Hoffman. Reverend Dr. Paul Hoffman is the lead pastor of Evangelical Friends Church of Newport, Rhode Island. He's also an adjunct professor of homiletics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and he's co-author with Matthew Kim of the book that we're discussing today, Preaching to a Divided Nation, a seven-step model for promoting reconciliation and unity, published by Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Sengalang Ng, Reverend Daniel Parham, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So I thought this was an excellent conversation with Reverend Dr. Hoffman. It's certainly a much needed conversation given the political and racial division and all other sorts of uh, divisive things that that currently characterize the landscape that we we find ourselves in, uh, both both here in the U.S. and and abroad, of course. And just really appreciated everything that Reverend Dr. Hoffman shared with us. Uh, Grace and Daniel, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation? I found myself in this moment uh, being heartwarmed and then also um, my mind being reinvigorated towards, I, I think, the goal of what, what kingdom life is theologically uh, and I think practically, right? I, I think this was one of those um, enlivening conversations that we've had amongst many, but there was such a clarity of calling and sincerity uh, in Pastor Paul's uh, ability to navigate uh, the polarizing elements of North American church life. And I'm appreciative that he's able to do that with a sense of uh, vigor, but also a sense of intellection that's very clearly there that I think reaches both sides. Yeah, so I really enjoyed um, Pastor Paul's focus on understanding our identity in Christ um, as a body and how we are united um, as believers, as being part of the same kingdom. Um, I really loved that he focused on um, showing like what things we actually have like similar similarities between um, all of our differences, uh, just focusing on those core things. Um, also, I think he just gave such a prophetic word um, on calling out the four isms um, that separate and divide um, our nation and our society and how uh, preachers and ministers of the gospel really need to call those things out and speak truth um, in being able to bring a reconciling and peace uh, to to our our world and to our nation. And with that, here's our conversation with Reverend Dr. Paul Hoffman. Dr. Hoffman, thanks so much for joining us. It's a delight to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we're excited to talk about your book, which you co-authored with Matthew Kim, Preaching to a Divided Nation. Can you tell us a little bit as we begin uh, what, what you guys are trying to do with this book? Obviously, we live in a very divided time, but uh, what specifically um, are you hoping that uh, preachers uh, do uh, with the situation in which we find ourselves? Yeah, thanks for that, John. I appreciate that question. So first off, just a, maybe a caveat is we uh, believe this book will speak to more than just pastors or preachers. We think it uh, carries principles and ideas that are applicable to ministry leaders and also those that just care about reconciliation, unity in the body of Christ. So I feel like I need to say that because, you know, the whole marketing thing is preaching to a divided nation, but we feel the audience is broader than just strictly pastors or preachers. What we hope to do with the book is create a seven-step pathway through which pastors, preachers, ministry leaders, thoughtful Christians, people of goodwill that care about reconciliation and unity can utilize to build bridges across difference and to live into, um, if you're a Christian, the Christian calling to be uh, God's agents of reconciliation. And a lot of this is informed by second Corinthians chapter five, where it talks about uh, being ambassadors of Christ. And Paul there, as you know, is defending his apostleship. 
And I believe this, you know, doesn't just describe Paul, it describes all Christians. We can extrapolate that out. But how do we live out this identity as ambassadors of Christ? How do we um, execute the ministry of reconciliation? And how do we carry forward the message of reconciliation? So we think this is fresh. We think this is unique. We're not aware of anything like this out there in terms of a seven-step pathway with which to attack the, the craziness that's going on out there. So we're trying to demystify we, and really provide practical steps. Thanks, Paul, for giving us that intro. Can you also um, just give more description about those seven steps? Yes, thank you for asking that. I didn't want to launch into a long... <laughs> I get excited, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. I could geek out and just you know go on and on, but thank you for that, Grace. I appreciate it. So the first step is the theological step. And Matt and I are trained theologians. He got his PhD at University of Edinburgh. I got mine at the University of Manchester. We actually met at Gordon Conwell. And the scholarship and the book emanates out of our 20 plus years um, as friends. So we really care deeply about theology. So the first step is the theological step. And we actually, uh, in the book, describe to, you know, because theology is such a broad, you know, subject, right? I know, John, your case, you're an expert in Galatians. You all have different expertise here, but in particular in the book, we lay out what we call a reconciling meta narrative. So we make the case that the Bible can actually be understood as a five part story. And the first part is creator, right? You guys know I um, studied in the UK. And when I went over there uh, to study, I realized how much I did not understand about the Trinity. The Trinity is a big deal over there. The ontology of the Trinity you know, the different operations of the Trinity. Uh, it was like a complete immersion in a Trinitarian thinking. I realized in the U.S., I think it had been de-emphasized. So I went over there and I really started to dig into the Trinity. So the first step is understanding that God in and of God's self, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit is one being in three persons. And right there, we have the model for unity and diversity, as I see it, that we have this one being who is three persons in perfect relationship. And I learned about perichoresis, uh, the interpenetration, the, the dance of the three members of the Trinity. So we all know that God, or I hope we know that God didn't need to create us, right? God is a perfect union of love. And so God doesn't need us, but out of the overflow of that love, God created all that is. And that leads us to the second part of the narrative, the first creation. And we know that God created everything out of that beauty and that love and everything was tov, right? It's good. It is whole. It, it is coherent. It has shalom, this thriving beauty. But then if we get to Genesis 3, right, we hit this ugly cliff where uh, the first humans basically uh, rebel against God, invite death and destruction and division, all the problems that we're dealing with, the four isms, which we talk about in the book. So we, then we have alienation. So first creator, first creation, third is alienation, where it all goes awry. And then the next step is reconciliation. And we know that God, through calling Abraham and the nation of Israel, and then they're fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who creates this one new humanity. Um, he brings reconciliation through the inauguration of his kingdom. And then I'm, a, I believe, an inaugurated eschatology, so the already and the not yet. And then uh, that leads to the final creation where Jesus Christ will come again, judge the living and the dead and usher in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven coming down the new earth. So right there, I've given you a lot of material. <laughs> I don't know if you have any thoughts about the, the theological step, but we think we can actually explain the Bible as a five-part reconciling narrative. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Uh, I have to reference you as Pastor Paul as, as a lover of preaching. <laughs> uh, uh, but but as, as, as you're thinking about those seven steps from a homiletical approach, like hmm. can you give us some, some wisdom on um, how you talked about the inaugurated, inaugurated eschatology in the hmm. framework homiletically? Um, because I think across different, different interpretations of how to preach, right? That that's oh. going to flesh itself out differently. And so how did you model that in the book? Oh, that's interesting, Daniel. Thank you. Ooh. It's a good one. I think I try and identify that framework in the book. I don't know how explicitly, 
you know, we say, oh, I believe in inaugurated eschatology. But in the book, we try and talk about the tension that we're living in this already and the not yet. And this frames so much of the rub and the conflict that we're up against right now that Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has ascended and been enthroned. Jesus Christ, you know, um, obviously he's resurrected and we'll come back to judge the living the dead, but we don't have everything yet. And that's where we get into the problem of Corinthians, where they have the overrealized eschatology, and we can do it all now. So I think the book maybe implicitly talks about that. As it relates to me preaching, I will oftentimes try and define inaugurated eschatology, or I'll, I'll talk more about the tension that we're living in that we see there reflected in scripture. So maybe I need to think about that more, how I've actually incorporated my eschatology into my preaching. I don't know how much of the book is really an eschatological work per se, but I do think it, it carries, um, it, it takes up a significant place in our thinking and our theology. More to the point is it's good for preachers to recognize what is my eschatology and how might it be influencing my preaching and as often as possible, bring it out so that people understand, because there are obviously different views out there about um, where this is all headed and what it's going to look like in the timeline of that. So I guess the best thing to say is it's a good thing to identify it, be aware of it and make others aware of it, especially for those that preach or teach on a regular basis. One of the things that we're seeing uh, a lot in the last uh, several years with uh, preaching in particular is that people are leaving churches because their pastors are speaking out too much yes. in relation to certain uh, divisive issues or aren't speaking out enough in relation to uh, these divisive issues. Um, and there's a number of them that we could list, of course, but how do you go about um, advocating that that pastors, uh, you know, do or don't address a lot of these really crucial topics? Because I think a lot of pastors are, are are worried that if they go down certain routes, then you know, a number of people will leave their church. Um, and, and so I'm I'm just wondering practically, what do you advise in 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 this regard, given how divisive? Yeah, are? yeah. Wow. That's first off, I tell pastors it's going to be hard either way. You're going to get kicked. If you try and occupy any centrist or ish position anywhere in the middle, you're always going to get kicked from both sides. So you're going to be kicked by those that left and the right politically. You're going to be kicked from those that say you need to talk more about politics. You're going to be kicked from those that be like, keep it out of the pulpit. And I, I imagine most of our churches have people that lean either direction. I want to hear about it more want to hear about it less or just keep it out altogether. So ironically, I was on another podcast recently where the pastor actually said, I realized I need to actually talk about it more. I've not addressed it. And by not addressing it, I think I've actually made things worse. And then I think of someone like Rich Velotis, um, at New Life Church in New York City, who actually he put in a sample sermon in the book. You know, he replaced uh, Peter Scazzaro. He's big into emotional health. Um, he he's braver than I am. He actually uh, held a meeting, I think it was on Zoom, where he had members of the elder board explain who they were voting for and why they were voting for that person. So I believe in the last election, he had one or two elders say, "This is why I'm voting for Trump," and then the other one or two other elders, "This is why I'm voting for Biden." And they had to set ground rules and everything. And I think he got a couple nasty grams. And of course, inevitably, people quit the church after that on both sides, because I can't follow this person that voted for such and so. So I guess the first thing I would say is that I don't know if there's a perfect way, because scripture doesn't say, you know, when you have 52 Sundays to preach, you should use X amount of Sundays, or you should use 10% of your sermons. We don't have a explicit paradigm. So I think a lot of it has to do with the pastor and the pastor's comfortability with this is one thing they need to, we need to acknowledge that. And it doesn't mean you should just stay there. Maybe if you are too political, you need to be less. Maybe if you're less political, you need to be a little bit more willing to engage. I think that takes discerning prayer with one's church structure, depending on the ecclesiology is your elder board or your council. You need to, you need to engage because your leaders are also going to be receiving fallout uh, from when you do this. And so, and then contextually, what is your church? What's going on in your church? And we actually talk about that, um, in the second step, not to steer us back to that, but in the second step, 
Um, we talk about this idea of historical intelligence, which is understanding the past of your church and the community you live in and our nation. And it's understanding who's in your church now, who can receive this. Is this too explosive? And maybe Sunday is not the, the place to do that. Maybe we need to do a forum outside of Sunday. So I wish I had an easier answer, but I was trained as a contextual theologian. And so I was learned that context is so significant in the shaping of our ministry, both for us, the congregants we serve, and then the dialogical relationship between us, our congregants, our leaders, and the community we serve in. Yeah, I think that sounds really wise. Um, just, yeah, going from that contextual perspective and making sure that all of our ministry is done with understanding the context of our people who we're ministering to and, um, yeah, the backgrounds and histories and relationships. Yeah, that seems really wise. So I appreciate that, Pastor Paul. And also, I wanted to get to the step, the personal step. I'm going down the seven steps right now. <laughs> Thanks, Grace. So sequential. I love that. <laughs> asking you um, uh, some more information about, yeah, what is it like um, as a pastor and as a preacher personally mm. to dive into some of these um, hard issues? Uh, yeah. So when we, um, so yeah, the first step is theological. Second step is the contextual. And that's really understanding uh, who you are, where you're serving. It's really more of an outward posture. You know, none of us are, we live in, unfortunately, in an ahistorical age where people just want to think, uh, forget the past, or I'm going to create a new future. And it's like, no, the the past is prologue. And, you know, the old adage, if we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it. Um, so yeah, I think history is important. But third, we talk about the personal step. And so we actually create a Venn diagram in the book that talks about three aspects of, of what we call homiletical maturity, which is really biblical maturity. And in my understanding, biblical maturity is conformity into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, right? We're made in the image of God. It's marred by the fall. I wouldn't say it's completely destroyed. We still retain, you know, a part of it. I know this is bandied about by theologians, um, but I'm, I don't, I have not been perfected. I've not been glorified. And so I'm still a work in progress. God is still sanctifying me. And one day I believe will glorify me, but I want to become more like Jesus, have the, the character of, um, or the personality of Paul, but the character of Jesus. I want to have the grace and the truth of Jesus. I want to have the qualities of Jesus. So maturity is, I think, being conformed into that image. And ultimately it's the image of God being restored in us. So how does that happen? Um, first, and by the way, we build a paradigm on Psalm 51, which is considered one of the greatest, you know, lament psalms in all of Scripture. And as you may very well know, depending on how you classify anywhere from one third up to one half of the psalms could be classified as lament. So what does it say that the biggest book of the Bible, one third to one half, contains lament? So we talk about um, lament. We talk about prayer, but um, Psalm 51 in the beginning, it starts actually with this idea of devotion where um, David is coming before God and he's repenting. But do we notice there, he mentions the character traits and the qualities of God. He talks about God have mercy on me. Right. And so there's the sense of um, our devotionalized lives of worship. Do we come before God who's merciful? Do we come before God who's just do we come before God that's kind and graceful? And so we say part of this is our devotional life before God. If we're going to be conformed into the image of Christ and become mature, there needs to be a worship life, right? A life rooted in prayer and in scripture. And so that's the first part. The next part, we talk about introspection. And this is where um, are we allowing the Holy Spirit to expose to us our blind spots, right? I hope we'd all agree we have blind spots. Um, we all have perhaps, I think, prejudices that we may not be aware of. Hopefully we're growing in awareness of them, um, but we have these blind spots. And that's why Jeremiah says, you know, the heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Basically, the answer is only God truly understands the depths of our hearts. So we talk about in practices of introspection where we allow God to expose us to our, ourselves, the depths of who we are to ourselves. And we talk about journaling talk about getting a coach or a counselor, a spiritual director. We talk about, you know, have you, have you taken the Enneagram? 
personality profiles have some really important aspects that have opened up parts of me that I was not aware of. And then the third part's the connection. And this is where we need to be in accountable relationships. Grace, I've found it, um, and maybe you guys have found this, I, I've had the blessing of going to 34 countries. Um, I've spent time in Africa and the Middle East and Asia and uh, Western cultures tend to be very individualistic and I'm, I'm painting with a broad stroke here. So please understand me. We have communities within our uh, Western culture, but by and large in the white Western culture, I grew up in an evangelicalism in the Northeast tends to be very individualistic, but I've learned that other cultures have a greater understanding of the community, uh, communality. I don't think I'm saying their commonality, um, the social aspects of our faith. And I need other people to speak into my life. I need other people to expose my blind spots to me. I need other people to hold me accountable. I need other people to confess to, you know? So we talk about uh, the personal aspect is God working in us, God sanctifying us through these different means, which we put there in a Venn diagram. At the center of the diagram is homiletical maturity through our devotion, through our introspection, and through our uh, communal uh, relationships, our connectivity, our connective relationships. God does something that forms us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And that's where God works in us. And hopefully that's where God strips away the fear that I don't want to address politics. I don't want to talk about race. I don't want to talk about sexism or classism because I'm too afraid. I don't want the nasty grams. I don't want people to quit. I don't want people angry at me. And that's where God can point out we have an idolatry toward being liked or needed. I also wonder, um, like you're talking about that having that communality that's um, more apparent in other cultures. And yeah, I also wonder like how important it is to have those like cross-cultural and cross socioeconomic, cross regional, like cross (laughs) everything, like cross national, international relationships with people that help us show show us and bring awareness of our prejudices. Yes, Grace, that's on point. And I've been very intentional. I talked about this in my first book, um, Reconciling Places, where my first cross-cultural experience actually took place in third grade. I just moved to Orono, Maine. It's where the University of Maine uh, at Orono is. And Maine is a pretty not diverse state. Um, if you look at the demographics, it's gotten better, but it's still not known for its diversity, if I may be so kind. Maybe that's too kind of a way of putting it. But um, I'll never forget, I had my first experience was actually my, my friend, Salvador Casenas, who is from Puerto Rico. And I remember going into his house and I remember the smells of the rice and beans and the spices. And I remember they had, um, what's his name, Iglesias, Julio Iglesias. So it, it was exotic to me, but then I started to learn there's other cultures. There's other ways of, of enjoying music. There's other ways of food. So that, was, that opened up a world to me that since then I've been very intentional in cultivating um, inter-ethnic relationships, inter-class relationships, um, inter-gender sex relationships, you know, with members of the opposite sex. And I realized you, if, if you're, and I hope people don't take this the wrong way, but if everyone that's in your friend group or social group looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, you may just be a narcissist. I don't know if that's too harsh, but I think God's plan for us is to have diverse relationships across class, across socioeconomic uh, barriers and differences and culture and language. I think this is God's plan. And here's why. I'm involved in something called One Church, One Prayer. And it's five churches. We meet monthly and we're a diversity of churches um, that are denominationally diverse, racially and socioeconomically diverse and uh, generationally diverse. And what we do is every time we have a meeting on the first Wednesday of each month and we rotate who hosts, uh, at the beginning of the meeting, we say simply this, we say, um, Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew six, thy will be done on earth as it is in what? In heaven, right? Well, what does heaven look like? Turn to Revelation chapter seven. Right. Revelation chapter seven drives so much of my thinking. It's every tribe, tongue, nation and people group. And I have a really good friend who's a revelation scholar 
And I've asked him, is this taking place in heaven right now? And he says, yes, as I understand it. Yes, that, that's not just the future. That's what's happening now. And when you look at the picture, when you look at the scene there, John gets a little porthole into heaven, into the new Jerusalem, if you will. And I find it compelling because you have both unity and diversity, right? That there's one object of worship, the lamb who is slain, right? And so they're singing the same songs in heaven, right? And everyone's clothed in white, which I interpret that um, they're uh, wearing the robes of Jesus' righteousness. You know, they've been justified. Um, and so, and yet, I love this. John sees the people have not been whitewashed like eggs in a carton. He can see, and I, this blows my mind, that he can see they're from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and people group. So they've retained something of their ethnicity. And yet what unites them is the object of worship and that they've all been robed in Jesus' righteousness. That to me is what I want to move toward. And that's what Jesus taught us to pray for and work for. Yeah, that's beautiful. And thinking about the topic of this book, which is preaching to a divided nation, I'm wondering if we can expand this a little bit to think about the applicability of these ideas internationally, especially because, yeah. for example, nationalisms, right, are on the rise throughout the world, yeah. right? There's a lot of kind of, you know, anti-immigration, a lot of yep. kind of, you know, turn around and kind of huddle together with those that look like you, as you were saying. Could you tell us a little bit uh, about about your your hope or, or or maybe some of the things that you guys do in the book to 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 broaden this beyond just obviously you're speaking to a divided nation, but we yeah. live in a very divided world that yes. that is characterized by a lot of the same things that divide our nation. Oh, what a poof. That's an incisive question. I was talking to a student a couple months back about it and the student was just, you know, interested in the book. And I think, um, what was she? I think she had some kind of Southeastern Asian, was she Malaysian, but like had been raised by missionary parents in Japan. And she was asking for the world version of the book. And I told her, don't take this the wrong way. Actually, I think her name was Grace. I, I said, don't take this the wrong way. I just hope this book works in America. <laughs> like, like, first off, I don't, I learned in, very much in the UK, not to be overly prescriptive. And so I don't, I don't want to be overly prescriptive. So my first hope and prayer is the book proves helpful to people in my context of America. And that was, that's the hope that Matt and I share. And I do believe, by the way, these ideas, these concepts can be mapped over to other contexts. You know, I hope someone, and um, there's elements of this book that may prove helpful for someone in a rural area of the Democratic Republic uh, of Congo and, and Jakarta and, you know, uh, Northern Russia and Helsinki and, you know, Guatemala. I hope that's the case. Um, I don't know that yet. So I'm trying to be humble in that, but as it relates to your point, your question, I do believe, um, there's ideas in the book that can be mapped over to different contexts. And so I do think in every place, we need to do more to emphasize a theology of reconciliation that this this that we can understand the bible as a five part narrative that has a what we call a reconciling meta narrative i think we can i'm not saying that's the only way of understanding the bible but i think that is a way that can so in in helsinki or the democratic republic of congo can our communities reach out to other christian communities and say we share a common story we share a common narrative can we work toward the Revelation 7 vision? Can we at least pray toward it and work toward it in relationships? Can we understand the context of our community and where our divisions originated? We have these divisions. Let's name them and call them out. We have them both nationally, but we also have distinct situations in this community, in this neighborhood, in this block. Um, can we name them and call them out? Um, you know, can we pray and enter into relationships of accountability. In the back of the book, we actually have an accountability covenant for pastors and Christians that choose to build relationships cross-denominationally, cross-racially, um, cross-generationally, cross-class. And class, by the way, we're finding is being one of the bigger divisions because you can be monocultural, you can be monoclass, you can actually have a really racially diverse group of people, but they all come from a similar educational background, vote for the same people. You get what I'm saying? So I do believe um, this book carries over. Now, having said that, 
I think each context has to pick the parts of the book that they think really, really speak to this. So, um, you know, uh, one of the things we talk about in the book is the idea of, and you guys may be familiar with this from a sociological perspective, but we say, we talk about the importance of going toward working more with centered sets rather than bounded sets. We have to start talking to people in different contexts. Do you realize we're divided because of these bounded sets are what are dominating? You're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're this party, you're that party, you're a male, you're a female, you come from this part of the city, you come from that part of the city. Um, we need to start naming and calling them out. And so one of the concepts we say in the book is, can we start with four centered sets? So if you're in Malawi, if you're in, you know, what have you, who's listening to this? And I know you guys have a very wide audience. So thank you for reminding me of that. But can we start not with what divides us, but can we start by reminding ourselves of the common ground that we share? So first we have shared doctrine. As Christians, we can pretty much all, hopefully 99% of the time, agree with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and probably some other creeds, right? Like we have an essential faith that we share. Can we start with our shared faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Can we remind ourselves who we worship is the same, uh, at least if we're Christians? Now, if you're in interfaith dialogue, that's different. Are we monotheists? You know, you can contextualize that. Then. Um, we just talk about other centered sets. Can, can we think about the fact we have, if we're in Christ, we have a shared identity. We are children of the king. We've been adopted. We're princes and princesses in this kingdom. We are co-heirs. We are one new humanity. We are the beautiful bride of Jesus Christ. Can we remind ourselves of that identity? And within that identity, we have a diversity of educational backgrounds and, and ethnic backgrounds and so forth. And then we talk about, we have a shared mission. We have the great commandment, the great commission, right? The great commandment, the great commission. We're all called, if you're a Christian, to make and multiply disciples, to love our neighbors ourselves. And then we all have shared experiences. We've all been excluded, bullied, mistreated, um, perhaps experienced prejudice. I can't say as a white male in America, I've experienced overt uh, prejudice because of the color of my skin to my knowledge, but I know what it's like to be excluded. I know what it's like to be marginalized. I know what it's like to be mistreated by people, um, or bullied. So, and there's, there's a similarity there. Um, although I, obviously there's different forms of discrimination. And so in that sense, I, I know that pain of being excluded. I, I think that's something that could be carried over to most every context. You hit the nail on the head when it came to all the, the dynamic changes that come with church life and i think the new testament paints that very explicitly right that mm. i mean pentecost led to conflict <laughs> it didn't, yeah it, it led to the form of the the, the diaconate right like it's like right. so yeah. it, it wasn't it wasn't that it just led to unity but it gave access to unity and i think yeah. access to unity is not an absence of conflict right it, it is right. it's a pursuit of that unity in the midst of conflict and i think you painted that very well I, I wonder for for us, it, particularly because your the book is aimed towards a North American American context. If there are pillars that are dividing us, um, what would you say is like the core pillars that actually are dividing us that we yeah. have to bring into the room whenever we have these conversations as North Americans? Yeah, that's nice. I would say actually in the book we bring out four that I think are pretty prominent in Scripture. In my first book, Reconciling Places, I, I refer to it as Galatians 3.28 triad, right? So you have ethnocentrism, which we differentiate uh, ethnocentrism from racism there and the fact that God created, you know, ethnicity, but race is a social construct. And um, so we talk about that, trying to use biblical frameworks and ideas. But, um, you know, that famous text there says there is now in Christ, right? These are not to be dominant things, but these are um, areas of division in our world. So ethnocentrism or racism, um, that's in, I, I'm pretty sure that's in every culture. I haven't been to every continent. I haven't been to every community, but seems pretty widespread to me. Um, a second one there is sexism, right? That goes back to Genesis 3 and the fall. And God even there says there's going to now be this, instead of the harmony between Adam and Eve, there's now going to be enmity and conflict and this power struggle. 
So uh, sexism and then classism, I see that in the, um, the, the whole issue uh, pertaining their slave or free with um, that being a uh, slavery being a social construct that divides people between owners and those that work for the owners, those who are being enslaved and oppressed. That was a, a big part of every economic system in the ancient world and in many today. Um, so the, these are the three isms we call it. And then I would add political uh, partisanship or which now this is a word is um, partisanism is actually a word. I don't know how widely spread it's being used, but partisanism. So we call it the four isms, racism or ethnocentrism, classism, sexism, and partisanism. And I do think this is present in every culture and we call them out and then we define them using scripture. And we actually use elaborate, uh, I don't want to say elaborate, but I hope somewhat thorough definitions for each. And so we, we first say they're idolatrous because um, I am a, a classic, um, you know, I think that it was the reformers and others that talked about sin as idolatry. And, and by the way, my PhD thesis was a critical um, exploration of Tim Keller's urban missiology. And so Keller talks a lot, as you guys may know, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this guy, maybe you've heard of him, Tim Keller, but um, you know, he uses that a lot as a way of explaining sin to secular people and how an idol can become oppressive. So um, first off, we talk about these four sins as idolatrous. We talk about them as social. And that's a big issue right now with a lot of people not understanding sin as a social thing, as a systemic thing. And so in the very least, we should be able to say that if something's social, it's something that um, is caused by multiple people against one or other people. Um, or it's a sin by one person impacting other people in the very least. Now we know there's the systemic elements that it, that sin corrupts, it corrupts organizations, it corrupts systems. Um, so yeah, so we talk about it as social or there's systemic elements to it. And then we talk about it, that it will lead people to create prejudices toward others and then from there, how it leads to exclusive or exclusionary behavior and separation, scapegoating, blaming, and then even it leads to forms of, of violence. And so we try and give robust definitions, but we do believe those four isms are really critical in scripture. And I do believe they're very present in North America, every culture. The last thing I'll say about it is the traditional formulation of the world, the flesh, and the devil those four isms, man, they're just fuel for the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that that terrible triumvirate, if I may say that, I didn't coin that term, that ter terrible triumvirate of the world, the flesh, and the devil take the isms, and man, they just, they put TNT in the cracks and just blow them up. So we, we need to be aware of these biblical and spiritual dynamics that are greatly impacting our world today. Thanks, Pastor Paul, for talking about those four isms. Um, I think that is, yeah, so true about how those four um, isms are so apparent and cause division in our society and our country and our world today. Um, I think something that struck me while you were talking is talking about the social aspects of sin and how it affects systems and societies. And I think a lot of times in uh, like North American Western evangelicalism, sin is seen just as like this individual personal thing. Yeah. How do you address that in like helping people see that it is more of a social systemic and personal thing? Yeah. So we try and bring that out in the book, although the book is not a work of you know, harmatology per se. Um, and I always pronounce that incorrectly, which is terrible for a theologian. So sorry if I mangled it. Um, first off, we do mention and interact some with the book Divided by Faith, which talks about the white evangelical toolkit. This is a classic white evangelical toolkit um, that the two authors of um, you know, Divided by Faith talk about this. This is a classic, unfortunately, white evangelical thing. We just say, well, sin is individual. Well, my first thing I tell people is I say, have you ever read the book of Judges? Like that's, that's what a corrupt society looks like. Like everybody did what was right in their own eyes all the time. So is that individual sin or is there a collective element? So first you have to point out, I think there's a lot of biblical elements and you have to keep 
hammering on that because some people just don't get it. So then you got to go on to the prophets, major, minor prophets. So why are they, the prophets, talking to Israel? Why are they talking to Edom? Why are they talking to all these different countries and speaking of, of these broad sins of oppression and marginalizing the poor? Why are they, why are they talking to the whole group about this? Because these, this has infected the society. So um, that's one thing. Another thing we try and talk about is if, if we think uh, people are broken by sin, why don't we think that people that are broken by sin can create broken systems? How, how do we think it just stops? If, and this is where, you know, we express a little bit of uh, mystification in the book because we say, so how is it that evangelicals and some of, from the Reformed persuasion, um, how can you believe and espouse total depravity and not believe in social forms of sin or systemic forms of sin. How do you go from where we're, we're every aspect is corrupted, but not the society, not the system, not the institution, not this thing or that thing. How do you, where do you draw that line? You're not being consistent. And so we, honestly, we talk about this in the book. And so um, we try and gently... <laughs> point out that this is a blind spot for many and that then we try and bring out the various scriptures that would seem to negate a very individualistic approach to sin. So we try and do so respect uh, respectfully. We try and give examples from scripture, but then we give a lot of extra biblical sources. And, and that was, uh, that was difficult when we were editing the book. How, how, what voices do we quote? Because evangelicals, uh, some, won't like it if it's by a non-explicit theologian or if it's not by my favorite theologian from my favorite theological camp. And so um, that's why we talk a lot in the book also about God's common grace, right? God can speak through non-Christian sources. We see that in scripture. We see parts of, as best we can tell, Proverbs were written by, I think it was King Lemuel or others who might not be explicitly Christian or, or be people of faith. I mean, come on, in scripture you have, I'm preaching through numbers right now. You have a donkey, a donkey prophesying and speaking truth. So how is it that you can, and believe me, I'm frustrated. So I try and be respectful and I try and build a biblical basis, but then we bring out other sources and um, we quote other books, um, Just Mercy right? And if you're familiar with Just Mercy, why is it that Alabama has more people of color and, and black people on death row than other people? And Brian Stevenson does a masterful job, if you've read that book, of talking about it. He both uses statistics and he uses stories. And by the way, parenthetically, we need both. Can, can I get an amen there? We need both. Like people tend to either quote a statistic or they tell a story. A story is great, but that could be a one-off. A story doesn't mean that's universally applicable. So, but stories bring it home. They, they make it real. They put flesh on the bones. We need stories and statistics. We need both the statistics, but then statistics can become dry. And we need the flesh and the bones, which are the stories. So that's just a little bit of it, Grace. Maybe I hope I answered some of it, but in the book, we try and uh, address this, but it doesn't necessarily dominate the book but we definitely address it in the book and ask, we hope some challenging questions as to why we could be a people that espouse total depravity, but then somehow don't believe in systemic sin. Yeah, that's wonderful. I completely co-sign with that. In fact, I wanted to ask you about total depravity. So I'm glad you, uh, you yeah. brought that, you brought that yeah. up. Um, but I, I want to go back to your point about partisanship or partisanism yeah. as being one of the four isms, because yeah. I, I can imagine that may, perhaps, you know, um, many listeners hear you say that and they think, yep, Democrats are idolatrous and sinners or yep, Republicans <laughs> are idolatrous and sinners. Right. As opposed to partisanism or partisanship being being, you know, the problem, we we might just villainize the other side. And, and I'm wondering if you could say more about, you know, how if that is kind of the posture that many of us have, and I think it's increasingly true, right? Um, if that's the posture that many of us have, when we think about partisanism, we're not actually thinking about the divide and the and the encampment. We're thinking about yeah. the other side as being the yeah, problem. Them. Can, can, yeah, exactly. You, you, you. Yeah. And can you can you can you walk us through <laughs> some of that? The kind of um, the kind yeah. of uh, problem there, and how yep. how uh, preachers, pastors um, can and should address that. Oh, that's so good. 
Um, that is one of the big crux. And that's one of the flashpoints is uh, our political partisanship or partisanism. Um, so, all right, how do I want to say this? What I find fascinating, and we mentioned this in the book, is there's um, a scholar, I think she's at the University of Maryland, Liliana Mason, wrote a great book, Uncivil Agreement. Uncivil Agreement. And she, you know, quotes other um, political scientists that say that now, the last 50, 60 years or so, political partisanism has become what they call a mega identity, a mega identity. And what blows my mind is that these, when you read some of these social scientists, they're actually using language that I would say sounds like they're using language around idolatry. It echoes of biblical language surrounding idolatry. When, when you call um, party a mega identity, that to me says that screams idolatry. So when it comes to, to this, we need to number one, show this is a trend. This is a trend in America. But if you remember first Corinthians, right? I follow Paul, I follow Paul, Apollos, right? It's all about lining up behind my favorite person, my favorite candidate, my favorite uh, personality. And so that, that's a general trend right now in America. But this has become an increasingly um, problematic situation in the United States because now political scientists are saying that it's gotten so bad, the, the partisanism and the mega identity, the idolatry, if you will, of political party, that now um, they're saying that it's actually creating socio-cultural difference. So that is to say that and they've done studies on this is that and i hope i'm not quoting the, the specifics wrong but they, they say that democrats drink starbucks republicans drink dunkin donuts right uh democrats uh wear levi's and republicans wear wranglers uh democrats live in these urban environments and republicans live in more suburban and rural and now people are creating enclaves they're, they're literally forming themselves into echo chambers such that we only talk to people that that vote like us and think like us and then when in an echo chamber you're just talking to people that reinforce your partisan beliefs and you're not interacting with those who don't which means you're not being exposed to difference which means you're not being challenged to think about others and to see the image of god in others and that other people are equally valuable they're made in the image of god and so then we start to demonize them and scapegoat them and it goes on and on. So first off, we need to identify this is a major idolatry in the United States. But secondly, may I say, it's a big problem overseas. And just a really quick aside, um, I know you studied over in the UK, John. Um, I happened to be over there during um, the vote for independence for Scotland um, a few years ago. And then I was there during Brexit. And the funniest thing was all these people would ask me, well, what's going on with Donald Trump? And I'm like, don't you see it? It's the same phenomenon with Scottish independence. And by the way, I have Scottish roots. In fact, we believe I'm related to William Wallace um, on my family side. That's a, in my first book, I talk about on my mom's side, I'm related to Edward I. And on my dad's side, I'm related to William Wallace. And my parents are divorced. And as you know, the story, Edward had Wallace uh, drawn and quartered and my parents are divorced. And so I said, it ends with me, the enmity ends with me, like reconciliation is in my blood on the deepest level. So, um, but it would be funny over there, the people in the UK are like, well, what's going on with that? And I'm like, well, what's going on with Brexit? Don't you see it's the same thing? And we see these nationalist movements. So we need to challenge people like, hey, we are kingdom people. You, I, I'm sorry, when I read the Bible, I don't see the United States of America and I love my country. I don't see Uganda. I don't see Honduras. I don't see Russia. I don't see Ukraine. I, I don't see them explicitly. I'm not saying the civilizations aren't there, but I don't see that uh, geopolitical entity in scripture. What I do see is that there's one king and there's one kingdom. And we're called to be a kingdom people. And in Ephesians 2, and this is why we have to preach on these things. I actually think pastors more and more need to preach on identity in Christ, where we show there can be diversity, but there is a unity rooted in, in Christ, the true vine. We are branches in the true vine. We, we need to tell people, we need to preach, we are one new humanity. God has created something new in the body of Christ. That is your highest form of identity. If that's not what you're bleeding for and you're triggered by so-and-so voted for so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so said this, if that's occupying 
your headspace, there's an idolatry there that you need to humbly, and, and I would say we need to speak prophetically, you need to, re, you need to identify the idol, you need to repent of the idol, you need to get accountable relationships, you need to limit your discipleship via cable news, you need to, you know, we need to start calling this out. And we need to call it out in ourselves. But we need to, to preach the word of God and then say, look, I struggle with this. And, and, you know, so it's not just you, 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 you talking down and preaching down or speaking down to people. But there's more I could say about that. But that's just the tip of that iceberg. I guess as a closing thought uh, for, for our time together, and, and thank you so much. I, I think this has been so, so enriching. What would you say, given what you've, you've, uh, what you've written, uh, what clearly is God's pastoral or prophetic call to mm. pastors in this age, right? If there's one thing that they could walk away from having like firmly planted in their mind after reading this book, what would you say is that prophetic call? Ooh, that's fire. Thank you. Um, I would say it's Second Corinthians 5. You and every Christian, but you as uh, ministry leaders, people that care passionately, you have an identity rooted in reconciliation, right? Um, that's what it means to be an ambassador. An ambassador represents one country to another. We're to represent heaven, our citizenship in heaven to this broken, fallen world, which God will redeem and restore and make new. But we are ambassadors. Our citizenship is in heaven. So number one, you have an identity rooted in reconciliation, in unity. Unity is not uniformity, and we don't have time to get into that. That's a whole other thing. But um, second, Paul uh, says there, talking about himself, but I think we extrapolate this out to all Christians and definitely ministry leaders, is that um, we have the ministry using uh, that, that word from acts of service, right? We have a ministry of reconciliation. This is a total life thing rooted in hospitality and being and attitude and posture. You never take it off. You never put it off, okay? And we are to share the message of reconciliation, which is, I would say, the gospel of reconciliation, right? Ephesians chapter two, where it talks about we're saved by grace alone, um, right? But through faith alone to be, right, this, this new, this, um, to be God's workmanship. Why? Everybody stops there at, at verse 10, but then you go on to verses 11 and following so that we can be this one new humanity because Jesus Christ and his cross tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And so, so leaders, pastors out there listening to this, I, I want all of us, myself included, to spend more time at living into and absorbing and praying to God to, to light the fuse and light the flame of the identity rooted in reconciliation and the message and ministry rooted in reconciliation. If we're not doing this, I don't know how faithful we're being to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. Amen. That is a beautiful prophetic call. And thanks for, for reminding us of that and calling us towards that. And just really appreciate having you on for this conversation, Dr. Hoffman. Thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege.